Welcome to 15 Minutes of Fascism, our weekly news and analysis podcast updating you on the global rise of the radical right. My name is Craig Johnson. This week, uh, which is Thanksgiving week here in the United States, I hope that you've been staying safe. And we're going to talk about some updates on fascist developments in the United States, in Europe and Brazil, and then a see you in hell from Japan in the late 60s. Now, one of the things that occurred this week in the United States is that a group of ex-Marines have been formally indicted for attempting to create a right-wing militant organization in Idaho, in the Boise, Idaho area. Uh, They were ex-Marines and assisted by somebody who used to work in the adult entertainment industry. Uh, Their plan was primarily centered on selling weapons to other militants, uh, explicitly in an effort to increase civil unrest in the United States. They also had a hit list with them, uh, found on the premises of their headquarters when it was raided after their indictment. Uh, The hit list included members of the Black Lives Matter movements uh, throughout the United States, primarily in the Pacific Northwest area, uh, and specifically targeting their leaders, uh, the leaders of Black Lives Matter protests. This is exactly what we can expect from fascists, that they are particularly targeting not just people of color, as in the example of the Ku Klux Klan, but specifically people who are leading progressive socialist or otherwise uh, anti-oppression movements, uh, Black Lives Matter being both led by Black Americans and also a movement in opposition to oppression in the United States is a prime target for them. Uh, in the White House, uh, we have a, a, I mean, it would be funny if it weren't disgusting, uh, event, uh, a person named Darren Beatty has been appointed to a White House position that deals with uh, Holocaust and other tragic memorial uh, services. You know, it, 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 it's the White House's official liaison to organizations that deal with the commemoration of these kinds of atrocities. The reason that this is particularly disgusting is that Darren Beatty had already been fired from the White House back in 2018 for being a white supremacist. Uh, he attended a meeting that a lot of other white supremacists were at, uh, including Richard Spencer, a famous white supremacist who rose to fame in 2015 through 2017 uh, as one of the leading proponents of the concept of the alt-right. Richard Spencer actually coined the term or at least popularized it. So Beattie was fired uh, by the Trump White House for being a white supremacist. So, you know, that's saying something. Uh, And he was only recently rehired to this position exactly why and how that seemed like something that it was even remotely acceptable to do i i you know i I honestly don't understand also unfortunately in the first is tragedy then is farce column this week uh kyle rittenhouse the uh miner from illinois who traveled to wisconsin in order to murder two black lives matter protesters and severely injure another one uh, is out on bail uh, he was man. He managed to crowdfund a two million dollar bail for himself, uh, with you know the contributions of people on the right wing in the United States, and also with some endorsements and shoutouts from Congresspersons who said that you know maybe he should run for Congress one day. So he's out on this two million dollar bail, and what does he do next? But he gets a sponsorship uh, from a coffee company called Black Rifle Coffee. Headquartered in Salt Lake City, Black Rifle Coffee is run by military veterans and primarily staffed by military veterans. As you can probably guess from the name, 
their iconography, their advertisement, and their sort of public persona, their brand is all around being pro-gun, pro-cop, pro-military. Uh, they're trying to be a right-wing coffee company, sort of like they present themselves effectively as, a, as, as like an, an anti-woke answer to Starbucks, something like that. Uh, so of course they would formally endorse and sponsor um, a fascist murderer, um, somebody who should be in jail uh, for his murders. This is the sort of thing where if it was the plot point in a dystopian science fiction story, I would have said, eh, that's a little much, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a little too far. Outside of the United States, we see the solidification of an anti-liberal bloc within the European Union, uh, centered on Poland, Hungary, and Slovakia. Poland and Hungary, of course, are ruled by right-wing parties. Uh, Hungary, under Viktor Orban, uh, has verged on dictatorship over the last several weeks and months, um, and indeed years, but uh, increasingly di dictatorial under the coronavirus. Uh, they have been opposing some um, funding legislation within the European Union. This is, it's sort of inside baseball, exactly the ins and outs of what the issue is, but but the fact that they are solidifying as a right-wing populist anti-liberal bloc trying to... Um, get back at other EU member states for criticizing them for their anti-democracy activity, uh, for jailing dissidents, for passing these uh, rule by decree type legislations um, is indicative of the fact that they're trying to be here to stay. You know, they're trying to find their allies within the European Union and trying to solidify uh, their ability to stay in the union while remaining um, on the path toward dictatorship or as uh, Orban likes to say, illiberal democracy, quote-unquote. Uh, another example of a right-wing leader in the world who is digging in his heels is Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil. Uh, he is one of the only uh, leaders in the world who has yet to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden for his victory uh, in the presidential election in the United States earlier in November. Um, this is including right-wing leaders throughout the rest of the world have sort of gotten on board and understood that Biden has won. Trump has even said that in as many words as he ever will, um, by allowing the transition offices of the White House to start the transition process. Uh, obviously, we can't really expect Trump to formally concede. You know, there's no particular reason for him to do so. Um, but Bolsonaro hasn't either. Now, perhaps he's seeing some of the writing on the wall for himself. You know, he, he models himself after Trump. He talks uh, up Trump. He tries to uh, advocate for closer relations between the United States and Brazil, specifically when it was under the Trump administration in the United States. Um, but he's been showing some real hostility towards a potential Biden presidency. That will be particularly interesting. Um, once Joe Biden takes office, uh, especially because Bolsonaro is really indicating that he is not going to play ball when it comes to environmental legislation internationally. We'll see exactly how that plays out. Uh, but the fact is that Bolsonaro is just way more popular in Brazil currently uh, than Trump ever was in the United States. And this is partly because Bolsonaro actually followed through with some of his more populist promises. Some of the things that Trump might have been able to do, might have done if he was you know, more serious about winning the election, or, you know, maybe if he was actually a sort of true believer in populist nationalism, the way Bolsonaro is, um, that's something we're going to have to wait and see.
Our see you in hell this week comes from Japan in the mid 20th century uh, in the form of Mishima Yukio, uh, an arguable edge case when it comes to fascism itself, but uh, clearly a case of a famous right winger who died this week. Mishima was born in Japan in the early 20th century, and he rose to prominence and became a uh, an important literary figure, uh, in especially in the post-war era in Japan. Uh, he was even considered for the Nobel Prize, although it actually went to uh, one of his uh, compatriots and collaborators at the time, the prize that he was being considered for. Uh, as he aged, uh, as the 1960s waned on, he became a much more serious big-time nationalist and a proponent of uh, really conservative perspectives on Shintoism, uh, the uh, official religion of the Empire of Japan, um, and also on the Japanese monarchy. You know, he, be he became a real monarchist. He, he believed that the Japanese emperor should be restored to power in Japan. He differed from uh, more mainstream conservatism in Japan that you know, supported the role of the United States, for example, in uh, expanding Japanese business or, you know, in in um, the expansion of capitalism in Japan. He was a traditionalist, you know, he's a hyper traditionalist. He wanted Japan to return to the Meiji era where the emperor was in control of the country, uh, or at least that's what he claimed. Uh, his interest in fascism and nationalism outside of Japan uh, led him to be a student and a sometimes admirer of fascist examples from the 1930s in Europe. Uh, he once wrote a play called My Friend Hitler uh, about fascists and their appeal, in which people like Adolf Hitler and Ernst Röhm uh, were characters uh, parading around the stage talking about uh, the benefits of fascism and nationalism. Now, as the 1950s and 60s went on, as I said, he becomes more solidified in his right wing and his conservative views. Um, and a group of other right wingers in him uh, get particularly galvanized uh, around the leftist student movements in Japan and indeed in the world in the summer of 1968. This is uh, a really important feature in world history. Um, the 68 student uprisings that occur in the United States, in Japan, in Argentina, in France, all over the world, really. Uh, Mishima and his friends see this as a, you know, the, a potential harbinger of the actual total loss of um, uh, traditionalist conservative Japanese culture. And they think that it's their job to try to restore the monarchy and to restore these traditions to their rightful place. So they make an ill-conceived putsch or coup uh, in 1960. Uh, he and some of his compatriots bluff their way into the offices of a military commander in Tokyo and, you know, so to say, take him hostage, they just tie him to his chair. Uh, and then Mishima speaks to uh, a group of military officers and soldiers from the window of this commander's um, office, and he tries to galvanize them. You know, he tries to drum up support for this hyper-conservative coup to restore the emperor to his power, basically to, to, to change Japan's civilian liberal pro-capitalist, pro-United States government back to a, an imperial Japanese government. Uh, the soldiers think that this is ridiculous. Um, they laugh at him, effectively. And having failed, or arguably knowing that he would fail, um, he returns to the uh, military officer's office and um, commits ritual suicide by stabbing himself in the gut uh, with a second, a friend, to decapitate him 
uh, to end his suffering more quickly. Um, his intended second failed, uh, and another person had to uh, cut off his head after three attempts. Um, this is in keeping with a particular ritualized form of suicide uh, that dates back to uh, the pre-Meiji era in Japan. So what we have is a post-war far-right nationalist uh, who believed in the violent rebirth of his country and its identity. But he has this sort of paleoconservative pro-imperial, like, like he's a monarchist perspective, um, that makes him not exactly quite clearly a fascist. Um, also, his coup, his putsch, was not organized by a mass political movement, um, but instead by a small group of radicals who thought that they might be able to just, you know, suddenly, you know, that the military support would just suddenly appear, that they might be able to just convince people that this was the right thing to do. Um, that makes him a little bit of a borderline case. But I think that he is particularly interesting to pay attention to, one, because he is a non-Western example, he's from Japan, um, but also because his legacy remains controversial, like as in people don't just universally condemn him, uh, despite the fact that he is a extreme right wing ideologue. Um, his books continue to sell in Japan. Uh, his literary prowess continues to be lauded and recognized. And he's an illustrative example in this capacity because it shows us that there are a lot of people who are on the extreme right in world history uh, that actually remain very popular, uh, not just in their countries of origin, but around the world. And unfortunately, that's what we can expect. It's unusual for fascists to be condemned as universally as, say, Hitler and Mussolini are. Um, they're sort of scapegoats in that respect. Um, more often, people slip through the cracks or get recognized for their other contributions, uh, while their fascism sort of gets to go by the wayside. So, Mishima Yukio, dead um, by his own hand, November 25th, 1970. We'll see you in hell. All right, that was this week's 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson. I'd like to thank Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our graphics intro and outro music, and I will talk to you next week.